Amen. Amen, church. Well, good morning. My name is Pastor Zach. It's my pleasure to get to uh, preach a sermon to you this morning. But before we get into today's scripture, I invite you to stand as you're able, wherever you're at, in your homes, as we together declare uh, our faith, our affirmation of faith over the entire heavenly hosts together as we say the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Those of you who are standing may be seated. This morning's scripture, the words of God for us this morning come to us from the Gospel of Mark. We'll be starting in chapter 5. We're going to read the first 20 verses of chapter 5. So if you have your own Bibles, I invite you to turn there. I believe you'll also be able to see them on the screen behind me. Let's prepare our hearts for just a moment to receive the Word of God. Holy Spirit, please speak to us through your powerful and alive, active Word. Amen. This is talking about Jesus and his disciples, and it says this, They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes, and when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. But when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. And he shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on a nearby hillside, and the demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs and allow us to go into them. And he gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs, and the herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed, and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. 
However, Jesus did not let him, but said, go home. Go to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. This is the word of God for God's people, and so we give thanks to him. Let's bow for a word of prayer together. Oh, Heavenly Father, may all of us gathered here today, including myself, spend the next few minutes together because of our love for you. First, I lift up the hearers of your word, and I pray that they would listen attentively because they love you. God, send your angels to protect us as we talk about spiritual warfare. And Lord, then I pray for me, and I ask you to join me in praying for me, that you would protect me as I preach the words that you are speaking this morning. Bind my tongue, let me only utter your words, and let me speak because I love you. In the powerful name of Jesus that we pray together with faith, amen. So when Kelsey, my wife, and I first started dating a little over four years ago now, wow. Um, So I was also in the midst of training for an Ironman triathlon, which was going to be in the mountains of Boulder, Colorado. Now, if you know anything about Colorado and mountains, you know that elevation is really just flat out terrible, okay? If you've ever tried to train or run, bike, swim, do any kind of exercise, walk up the stairs at elevation, at altitude, you know it's just an all-around terrible experience, right? Because of the lack of oxygen. So you're out of breath, your lungs don't have oxygen, but not only that, it doesn't stop there. The oxygen is deprived from your muscles. Your muscles are oxygen deprived, and so they start to wig out and spaz out. They don't respond like you expect them to, it's not good. You also know that I live in Texas, Uh, since I'm in Texas right now, that was an easy one for you, and you know that in Texas, especially in Houston, it's flat, okay? I don't have any access to train at elevation to prepare myself for this race, and so what I did is I purchased something called a training mask, It's this training mask. It's supposed to help you prepare for elevation, and so it's this rubber mask, and it creates a seal around your mouth and your nose, and has straps that go around your head, and the only reason I don't wear it into HEB now is my corona mask. Well, two reasons, actually. One is it looks absolutely terrifying, and two is it limits the oxygen flow, and that's just counterproductive, so I'm not going to do it. I have another mask. Uh, But at the time, I was preparing for this race, and so it made sense to me to train with this mask on. Now, what I'm about to do next is I'm about to let you in on my heart, something I'm a little bit ashamed of, but I feel comfortable stepping into the light, like Pastor Jason talked about last week, feel comfortable stepping into the light with you. So here goes. What I did between training sessions is because combined with my vanity 
foolishness and general slobbish nature when it came to the state of my car and the cleanliness of my car as I left my training mask between sessions on the floorboard of my passenger seat. The reason I did this, I'm being honest with you, is I really wanted my friends to see the mask, ask me what it was for, and then I could just show them how tough I was. Now, I also mentioned that I had just started dating Kelsey, and so obviously she needs to know how tough I am if she's going to stick with me. And uh, so we're riding in the car together, and, and she, I'm kind of waiting for it, and she bends over to the floorboard to pick something up, and I'm like, okay, this is the moment. And she's sitting back up in her seat, and all of a sudden she drops the mask like a hot potato and turns toward the window, which this is what Kelsey does when she's uncomfortable with the situation. She just turns away from me like this. That's how I know something bad's going on. And, uh, and so she, she drops the mask, and I'm sitting there thinking like, oh, no. This, I saw that going differently in my mind. And so I turn to her, and I say, what's, uh, what's wrong? And she looks over at me with disgust in her face, and she says, is that an athletic cup? Oh my gosh, you do not want to do that in the early stages of dating. It's awkward enough as it is. And so I just, I tried to recover. It did not accomplish the purpose. I did not look tough. It was awful. It was a classic case of misunderstanding the situation. Kelsey misunderstood what was going on. And the reason I tell you that, friends, is because I want to make sure that we don't have a classic case of misunderstanding the situation when it comes to this morning's passage. You see, in Mark chapter 5, we have this epic showdown between Jesus and a legion of demons. It's like, it's like something from a movie. It's Hollywood-esque. Jesus comes, and there's this interaction. So he lands on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. The first time he's come to the Gerasenes, the region of the Gerasenes, he gets out of the boat, and there's this man who lives there, and he just roams around a graveyard naked, screaming at the top of his lungs, terrorizing people. No one can bind him with chains. He just breaks the chains. He's too strong, and he slices himself with rocks. Okay, this is just nuts. And Jesus comes to this region, and the man sees him, and the man runs forward. He's never seen Jesus before. He runs up to Jesus, and he falls to his knees. Now, why does he fall to his knees if he doesn't know who Jesus is? Well, this is where it can get confusing. You see, Jesus has this interaction with this demon-possessed man, and it's, it reads like the man is doing the talking. When we look a little deeper, however, we learn that it's actually the demons, the legion of demons, talking with the man's voice, talking with Jesus. And so the reason that he runs up to Jesus and falls to his knees is because even the demons fall to their knees at the glory of Jesus. Amen? And so he falls to his knees in front of Jesus, and he shouts, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me, because Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. And then Jesus says, What is your name? And then he replies, My name is Legion. Again, this is the demons talking with the man's voice. He says, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begs Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. And so Jesus casts him out of the man, allows, at the demon's request, allows them to go into this herd of pigs, and this herd of 2,000 pigs that was 
as calm as pigs can be, all of a sudden is careening down the hillside into the Sea of Galilee, and they're drowned. Can you picture how crazy that would be? Now, I don't know about you, but my experience today has never come across anything like that outside of a Hollywood movie. Which, by the way, I try and stay away from it. It's just not worth the risk. And so we have to be careful about this, and here's why. Because I think what Satan wants us to do is he wants us to read this passage, make the connection with Hollywood that, that this is something of a movie, a fantasy story, and he wants us to make the jump to believe deep down that spiritual warfare is no longer a matter of our concern. It's something of a fantasy story. And he wants you to believe that Satan, Satan wants you to believe that he is not at work, that you're not at any risk when it comes to him and his vassals. And as soon as we believe that, we are at risk. Because the scripture has told us that Satan roams about planet Earth like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And in my experience, Satan is still very real, very active each day all over. And I'm sure there are places where things like this are going on. But in my experience, Satan has just changed his strategy a bit. He's changed his strategy. See, in Mark chapter 5, we see an area that's owned by Satan. It's like it's under a cover of darkness. And I'll explain to you why I believe that. Four reasons why I believe this region is under a cover of darkness. Reason number one. There is, this one's obvious. There is a man possessed by a legion of demons who runs around a graveyard, slicing himself naked, screaming at the top of his lungs. People cannot chain him up. He's too strong. It's like extraterrestrial seeming almost. It's, it's extraordinary and the people have, everyone knows about him. Okay, so that's reason number one why I think this region is under a cover of darkness. Reason number two. When Jesus casts the impure spirits out of the demon-possessed man, look at what they say. They plead with Jesus, they beg Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. Okay, they want to stay in this area and keep up their their terror of, of fear being pushed on these people. That's reason number two. Reason number three. When the people come up after they've heard what's going on, they come up, they see this demon-possessed man who they all knew about, and he's sitting there in his right mind. He's clothed. He's probably smiling because of what's just happened to him, and he's sitting there, likely listening to Jesus, and it says... In verse 15, that when they see him there, who before this man was scary, like you can be afraid when you come to the demon-possessed man, but now they come to him in his right mind, and they were afraid. That's not a natural reaction for people that aren't under a cover of darkness. That's reason number three. And then reason number four is in verse 17, and the people, when they figure out what's going on, at this point they should recognize that this man has been healed, and he's been healed by Jesus, and so their response should be, Jesus, heal us too, but their response is they plead with Jesus to get out of their region. 
get out of their region. And so we have this picture painted for us of a region that's under a cover of darkness that's being owned and ruled by Satan and his demons. And whether it's just from the impact of this madman, this demon-possessed man, or whether Satan is at work in other ways, it doesn't tell us. I think likely it's a combination of things. But we see this entire area that's driven by fear. And so nowadays, we see something a little different from Satan. Again, I'm sure this is happening at places in the world, but in my experience, Satan has changed his strategy. He works in a less overt, movie-like attack, and he comes in in a much more subtle way. See, instead of a big overt fear tactic, Satan, what he does is he tries to get you alone. He wants to isolate you. It's something much more sinister, much more subtle, much more quiet. And so what Satan does is in your darkest, most alone moments, he whispers to you. And he whispers to you and he says, you know, your friends would really be horrified if they found out what you're really like. He says, if this gets out, if what you just did, if that thought you just had when you just coveted your neighbor's wife, if that gets out, that you have thoughts like that, you can never show your face in public again. And so when he does that, and he gets you to stay under cover of darkness and stay isolated from your community of believers around you, That is when he's waging his war, and when he succeeds in keeping you alone and keeping you in darkness, keeping you from stepping into the light, that's when he's won. By the way, that's why at Covenant we are a church of community groups, of cell groups, and if you want to get into a community where it's safe to step into the light together with trusted, believing friends, uh, reach out to us. We'll get you into a group. Brothers and sisters, God has made it perfectly clear in his holy word that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's Romans 3.23. That all believers are meant to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That's Galatians 6.2. And God's holy word makes it perfectly clear that the blood of Jesus has leveled the playing field. What do I mean leveled the playing field? It means that when we look around and we see sinners, our general way to interpret sin is we look at sin in, in terms of how much, right? This person sinned this much, this person sinned this much, therefore that person is worse. Their identity is that of a worse person. But what God sees is not your stack of sins. God looks from the top down. And when I say that the blood of Jesus has leveled the playing field, that means that Jesus' blood literally covers you, changes your identity, and your identity is no longer determined by your sinful nature because it is gone. The old has passed away. The new has come. Your identity is found in the blood of Jesus that has washed you clean. And so when God looks from the top down, that's all he sees. That's all he sees. Now let's look together 
at what happens in Mark chapter 5 after Jesus frees this man from his bondage. So in verse 15, the people of Gennesaret show up. They've now heard from the pig herders and the people who saw what happened with the pigs that something crazy is going on. They show up. They see the demon-possessed man sitting there clothed in his right mind. He's likely listening to Jesus. And what it says at the end of verse 15, it says, they were afraid. Again, Satan has control of this region. He's driving them with fear. Let's jump down to verse 17. The people are pleading with Jesus to leave to leave their region. They're saying, get away from here. They're afraid of the healer. But you know what's even crazier than that? Jesus actually leaves. Okay, Jesus came to Gennesaret, to this region, for the first time in his life, the first time in his ministry, he performs one miracle, heals one person. The people plead with him to leave, and he goes. More on that in a minute. Now, what about the man whom Jesus healed? Let's look at him for a minute. Verse 18. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Okay, now that's a natural reaction to the story that we just heard. This man was healed from a crazy possession of demons. And what's his response? I want to go with this man who healed me. That's normal. Verse 19. However, Jesus did not let him go, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Verse 20 tells us that that's exactly what the man did. This man was so affected by the healing power of Jesus in his very soul that he was willing to throw away his entire life to, do, to follow Jesus. But yet he was so willing to actually throw away everything that he even threw out his desire to be physically with Jesus so that he could follow Jesus in obedience. In obedience. Now this guy, let's be honest, he has an advantage over people like you and I because of the overt nature of his transformation, of his healing, of his, of his freedom, his deliverance. See, the contrast between his life in bondage and his life in freedom is so stark that is he going to go back to his old life, running around the tombs naked, cutting himself with rocks, screaming, terrifying people? No way. There's no way he's going back to that. So he has an advantage. It's, it, I think it's a little bit easier for him to, to throw out his plans, his life, and to do whatever Jesus says. This is another one of Satan's schemes for you and I, brothers and sisters. What Satan wants you to think is that the transformation between your bondage and your freedom is really not that different. That there's really not much of a contrast between what your life was like when you were a slave to your sin and what your life is like now that you are freed and alive. Satan wants you to think that that's the same. So sinister. But so, brothers and sisters, I ask you, we have to ask ourselves these questions. Are you willing to throw out everything, your past life, in order to follow Jesus? 
like this man was? Will you throw out your entire schedule just to spend time with the person who has healed you? Friends, will you throw out all of your sinful desires just to be holy as the one who healed you is holy? And will you throw out every plan you have for your life, every priority you have for your future, for your family, for yourself, just to follow the direction of Jesus, to follow Jesus in obedience like the demon-possessed man was? You see, saints of God, those who believe in Jesus, you have been set free. Not so that you can remain in your bondage, and not even so that you can just do your own thing as a free person. But you have been set free, and you have been given a purpose. What is that purpose? Well, let's turn together to the Word of God, 1 John chapter 4. This is incredible. Prepare your hearts to receive this incredible message from the Lord. We'll start in verse 12. It says this, No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. Stop there. Do you get what this just said? No one has ever seen God. Here today where we live, no one has seen God, but this is how people can see God. They see God in you and I, in the church And God's holy and perfect love, the one, the God whose very name is love, that love is made complete in us? And how is that possible? Verse 12 says, if we love one another. And we'll jump down to verse 17, and and it tells us how this is possible. Verse 17 says, This is how love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. Ready for this? In this world, we, John is writing to the church, to anyone who has believed, we are like Jesus. Do you get that? We are like Jesus. We, Jesus, came to this world. He died on the cross, offering the greatest definition of love possible, and then he left, he went, ascended into heaven, sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, like we said in the Apostles' Creed, and you know why he was okay doing that? Because he loves the world through you. Jesus offers his holy and perfect, in fact, complete love to the world through you, because in this world, we believers are like Jesus. Do you get that? And in this passage, in the same way, Jesus came to Gennesaret for the first time. He healed one man. He did one miracle, and then he left. But he didn't leave without first planting a seed. You see, he said to the demon-possessed man, you cannot come with me physically, but you can go with me because I have a purpose for your life. Go and tell. Go and tell. And brothers and sisters, this is the purpose for our lives. You have been freed and given a purpose by God the Father Almighty and His Son Jesus and His Holy Spirit to go and tell others. Because 
Let me tell you this. You cannot offer love to an unbeliever without telling them about the Jesus who can save them. It just, they cannot be separated. If you're going to love the world and be Jesus to the world, you have to tell the world about Jesus. That's just the way it is. And so there are some of you that are saying to me right now, but Zach, I am not good at talking to people. I'm not good at, at sharing the gospel with people or starting a conversation with strangers or starting a conversation that might be uncomfortable with a friend who's an unbeliever. There are others of you listening to this, and you're saying, well, I'm afraid to do that. I don't mind talking to a stranger or talking to my friends about uncomfortable subjects, but they're going to ask me questions that I don't have the answer to. And I'm going to make God look bad if I don't give the right answer, if I don't have every verse in the Bible memorized to give them the answer. And so you have to hear this. When God gives you a purpose, it is his power that bears the fruit. When God gives you a purpose, your only job is to walk in obedience, not to be powerful enough to save souls, not to be persuasive enough to convince people that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. It is God's power that bears the fruit in your job to walk in obedience. And so verse 20 of Mark 5 says that the the demon-possessed man did just that. He went away and he began to tell in the Decapolis, which means the region of ten cities. And we don't know exactly what cities are a part of the Decapolis, but we know that either Gennesaret is a part of the Decapolis or it's in the same general area of Israel. And it says at the end of verse 20 that when this man went and told them how much Jesus had done for him, all the people were amazed. Now turn with me a couple of pages over in your Bible to chapter 6 of Mark, starting in verse 53, and let's check back in the very next time that Jesus comes to this region. The last time he was here, they pleaded with him to leave. Let's see how he gets received. Verse 53, when they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. This is Jesus and his disciples. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. Did they run in fear? They ran throughout that whole region, and they carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was, and wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. Brothers and sisters, when God gives you a purpose, it is your job to walk in obedience, and it is God's job and God's power to bear the fruit. So let me bring it home for us. Brothers and sisters, those who have believed in Jesus to be saved, this is true of you. You have been freed for a purpose. Jesus has given you a purpose. That purpose is to love the world, to be Jesus for the world. And that means sharing the gospel with those who do not know. 
And so may we all be honest with ourselves, honest with God, and honest with others about the state of our hearts. In Jesus' name, may it be so. And may we lay down our very lives, every plan, every priority, every schedule that we have at the feet of Jesus, willing to live in his perfect purpose for our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Let's pray together. Oh God, our Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word that when you give us a purpose, you do not need us to level up, to work it out, to bear the fruit, that it is your power in us and through us and around us that bears the fruit. So let us have faith. Let us step out of our bondage. Let us have the the schemes of Satan revealed to us so that we can forfeit, that we can, can overcome his schemes by the power of Jesus. And God, give us the courage and the faith to lay down our very lives to follow Jesus in obedience. God, as the, as the people of this church, as your people, offer their gifts to you, I pray that you would bless the gifts and the givers alike and use it, again, use it for your purposes. We pray this in Jesus' name.